0: The talkers around the table today discuss the poetry of coexistence. We'll think about the sometimes poetic, sometimes macabre soap opera of existence, constantly at play both within and between species. We'll explore the mutualism and parasitism continuum and see the similarities and dissimilarities between cooperation and competition. What is the nature of parasite-host relationships and predator-prey relationships? Is cooperation an anthropogenic construct? And is it possible to identify the qualitative and quantitative basis and conditions for community coexistence among species? We're very pleased and privileged to have three talkers around the table today. Prof. K. N. Ganeshaya, who is an evolutionary biologist and a fiction writer in Kannada. He's from UAS in Bangalore. Prof. Rajan Gurukal, who is a social historian and from the center of contemporary studies at ISC in Bangalore and professor swati patankar who is a scientist and a teacher and works in the area of parasites and molecular parasitology she is from IIT bombay Swati, maybe we set the ball rolling with you um, and go from really small to big and start at the microbiological level to understand the world of parasites, maybe take the malarial parasite as an example, um, to begin to characterize what that relationship is like. Why does a parasite exist in the first place? What does a host do? What does a vector do? And maybe we'll unravel it as we go.
1: Sure. So, um... If I just think about malaria, which is what I'm, you know, which I've what I've been been working on for a while, so um, so the malaria parasite has has two organisms that it coexists with. So mm-hmm. one is the human host, and the other is the mosquito vector. Mm-hmm. And this is, the, of course, the the human malaria parasite. There are, um, are you know malaria parasites which infect all sorts of vertebrates, but mm-hmm. they all use the same mosquito or different mosquitoes, I think. Sure. So. Um, the parasite, even though it seems to be having, uh, you know, a sort of an arms race with the host, especially mm-hmm. when it comes to humans, which is, you know, which is what we have looked at a lot since it causes disease. Um, the way I sort of think about this relationship is also from the point of view of the fact that this, this parasite has actually been coexisting with the hosts
2: mm-hmm.
1: for millions of years. So, in mm-hmm. fact, um, malaria is a very old disease, so you can actually trace malaria in almost every single vertebrate on this planet.
0: And it predates homo sapiens if its millions of years because...
1: Yes. Mm. So it has actually, you know, it will, it will infect reptiles and birds and all sorts of creatures. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the evolutionary tree mm-hmm. of the hosts and the evolutionary tree of the parasites, which infect those hosts, mm-hmm. the you know, malaria parasites, they're actually almost like mirrors. They're just, you wow. know, superimposable. Mm. So what this tells you is that they've been evolving, they've been, you know coming together for all these millions of years and even though we th- we think about it as a disease and something which is you know which is not very beneficial to us the fact that that that, that we have been t- together for so long tells us that actually the two parties have have begun to you know to work with each other to the extent where they are not decimating the other population completely yeah, yeah. so yeah. there is definitely a, a survival game going on and what is the, the evolutionary purpose there? Swati,
0: why does a man i mean one can ask that for human beings as well why do human beings exist uh, True. <laughs> <laughs> so i mean one is humble about the question but what what is the reason for a material parasite to exist at all
1: um, actually um, I, I you know short the short answer is I don't know sure. uh, but you know I've actually been asked this this question about the mosquito a lot of people you know <laughs> have asked me why does the mosquito exist at all mm-hmm. and uh, my answer is that we always you know we ask that question thinking about ourselves right which is what we tend to do obviously right so um, the mosquito must have some purpose in terms of what it's able to do for the ecosystem and you know the entire you know the place where it actually lives and so again so malaria parasites you know I mean the why is the big question which is very hard to answer but um, I mean every single organism has had some role to play in the entire you know um, sort of structure of the whole planet and so we tend to look at it from our own angle and that's not always the That's interesting. So
0: there's co-evolution at play over a very long period of time.
1: Yeah, and maybe later on I can give you some specific examples of that. That um, there are there are very very specific examples where you can see that the host and the parasite have changed their their genetic makeup Uh to try to um, you know work together and not end up in a complete. At one level as well, how
0: how do you think of this, uh, Professor Ganeshaya? Is there is there parasitism at work in the Plant and animal world uh, in, in, at non-microbiological levels clearly there are aren't they
3: I would like to take on from the question you asked to Swathy and why does mosquito why does a mosquito, uh, mosquito exist? exist why do humans exist a non-human question <laughs> maybe if mosquitoes have consciousness and there was, there was a rajan mosquito you would have asked the same question on why do human beings exist exactly exactly <laughs> So, the answer to that is certainly both not simple and at the same time very plain.
4: Uh-huh.
3: It's mm-hmm. not simple because we are asking that question with the human consciousness. Correct. But if you ask that question in the context of natural selection, mm-hmm. they're there simply as evolutionary accidents. Right. Nothing beyond that. Somewhere in the past, evolution began, it took its turns in the form of plants and insects and animals and eventually evolved into humans as ours. So, in the process, they are all there as consequences of this random mutations, fluctuations, selection and the process of uh, the evolution. Mm -hmm. So, the simple answer is that. But if you are asking another question which is, as I told, a conscious thing, I think I don't it, think there is a simple answer for it that
0: it could be a nonsensical question to begin with
3: in some sense it might appear to be nonsensical but yeah. uh, that brings us to another uh, you know question of was there a designer behind all this correct if you agree that there was a designer behind all this then you can ask the question of why it exists maybe it had a role maybe as swati told they were all required to maintain the balance of this whole you know ecosystem of the world and maybe mosquito has a Place there, but if you keep that idea aside and think purely in the context of evolutionary biology, they are simple accidents of evolution. Interesting, interesting. That's the way I look at it.
0: And let me ask you this, Professor Ganeshaya: Why do so many species exist in groups?
3: Well, in this and, cont- and some
0: exist not in groups. I mean, well, in
3: this context yeah. of coexistence. Uh huh we do see individuals exist in uh, isolation in groups species exist in co- you know in co- in cooperative manner all forms and all different kinds of uh, combinations you can now think of okay let me take the example of uh, the pride of lions okay which again now coexist among themselves right they coexist because by being together they can hunt better uh
4: uh-huh.
3: by hunting better they both survive Right, so they coexist there purely for their survival, yeah. Without uh, any benefit of that kind, they would not have coexisted. Yeah. You know, there is this famous uh, statement by Dobzhansky called, "Nothing in biology makes sense except in the light of evolution." Yeah, I would like to modify that. Nothing in evolution makes sense except in the light of selfishness. <laughs> All coexistence. Be it parasitism or cooperation or mutualism, or uh, group—it is
0: survival instinct. Yes, it is
3: purely selfishness Mm -hmm. because they want to survive. Because they are selfish. Because they are greedy they forgo their own isolation and they join hands with others, which we term coexistence or cooperation. So in that sense, the coexistence is nothing but a manifestation of the selfishness that is actually underlying their own personal survival instinct or biological instinct.
0: Right. And obviously there's natural selection of families and there are occasions when families survive but individuals don't. And it. it-
3: well the famous example for that is honeybees correct the family survival where mm-hmm. there is a queen and queen lays eggs and which are actually the sisters or the daughters of the queen and they are all among them sisters and these sisters do not reproduce on their own as a matter of fact yeah and when something doesn't reproduce they cannot survive but in the evolutionary time scale sisters have survived uh-huh. so that is the best example of a family surviving as one unit The way evolution explains this is again purely on the basis of selfishness. Uh Now it is shown by a scientist called Hamilton Uh that these sisters among themselves are more closely related genetically. In other words, each sister looks at the other sister as herself, than she looks at her own daughter as her daughter. But genetically, the sisters in this honeybee colony are more related. So much so that a sister would like to have more of her sisters than more of the daughters. That's
0: very interesting.
3: And so the family goes on growing there. And so the entire family is selected. Whereas in our system, in you, me, or in our social systems, our uh-huh. human systems, our daughters are more related to us than our sisters, more likely. That's because she certainly carries half of my, you know, half myself. The genes. Yeah, yeah. half the genes or half of myself. Whereas my sister may not carry half of myself. And so, in our situation, the family is not so tight as the honeybees is. But nevertheless, a question might come. There is coexistence among families. One family in fact, tries to fight for itself compared to or fights with another family. In that sense, the members of a family coexist. That again is explained on the basis of this Relatedness or genetic relatedness. My sisters obviously are related to me more than some unrelated family sisters to me, and so I fight for my own family. Right. So that kind of coexistence among the members of the same family again is a manifestation of the selfishness rooted in our genes. That's interesting. This is the biological That's very
0: interesting. Professor Gurukul, it's interesting, isn't it? The selfishness word has been uttered a few times <laughs> by Professor Ganesha. yeah. How? What's your take on that? Is do you see that in that light or? Yeah. There's another interpretation of it potentially.
5: Yeah, when Professor Swati and Ganeshaya, when both of them talked about coexistence, there is the implicit presumption that coexistence involves cooperation. Yes. It need not necessarily be so always. Mm-hmm. Coexistence would mean uh, some kind of coeval nature of existence of the multiple. In Mm -hmm. the same place in the given time. Right. If we take the macro space, the earth, and then a given time, Mm -hmm. I have multiple beings. Mm -hmm. They just exist. We call it coexistence. But coexistence can involve multiple relations. It can be neutral as well. Now, when you identify a kind of cooperation, Mm -hmm. that is... A relationship having something to do with subsistence and survival. Right. There can be mutuality. Uh, there can be reciprocity. And, and there, there can also be asymmetrical kind of relationship. Relationship imposed on uh, by the dominant over the
0: subordinate. Yeah, the predator-prey uh, relationship. Yes, of that
5: it. that kind of. Now, e- even in such circumstances, there would be a certain kind of larger solidarity on certain matters. Mm -hmm. There also you will identify a relationship in coexistence. Mm -hmm. They may be having in subsistence context predator-prey relationship. But uh, on the whole, in that given segment of the biosphere, they would follow certain basic norms for ensuring the survival of both,
0: of course. I mean, you never run out of praise e- in a forest e- if it's yes. stable. If it's stable, so there equilibrium. is
5: some kind of equilibrium unconsciously maintained at that level. When we come to the question of
0: human beings, is it is it unconscious <coughs> or does it have to do with the notion of there not being any surplus? So if so, if, you know, yeah, you that, spoke that, about yeah, the pride that, of lions. Yeah, that maybe
5: that maybe the intimation that they receive there is scarcity of the resource and or there is overpopulation. Right. Various such uh, diffuse intimations would go into the making of one kind of behavior or the other. Right. Now, uh, Professor Swati started with the parasite relationship. Yes. Now, uh, taking human being, perhaps the, the top in the, in the hierarchy of living beings, <laughs> uh, also uh, in terms of the, the level of consciousness, Now, human beings uh, certainly were aware of the meanings and implications of coexistence. Mm -hmm. They knew that coexistence was necessary, Mm -hmm. certainly with certain values. Mm -hmm. And even when certain uh, elements were found totally antithetical, uh, human beings were aware of the inadvertent use of that. And also... Always they were conscious of the unavoidability of that. You can exist only amongst. Right. And in, in various tribal communities uh, all over the globe, there existed the notion of tolerating the most intolerable. <laughs> That's so beautiful. And in, in the ancient Ayurvedic texts, no, one of the ancient texts, the Charaka Samhita, we have an interesting concept called Hetu Samya. Hetu Samya. Hetu Samya. Mm -hmm. Hetu means the cause and Samya is the Samyak or the equilibrium state. Okay. And the treatment against the illnesses starts with the uh, primary notion that there are multiple causes for the illness and you have to exist amongst them. So what is important is resuscitate the lost capacity to exist uh, among adverse factors. There are multiple causes and you should allow your body as the host of causes of illness. But you will not have the illness. When your body is hosting all kinds of pathogens and so on, according to modern science, Ayurvedic medicine never had any such notion, but somehow this is... uh, repeated in various contexts. The Hedu Samya principle. And the medicine uh, is only to help the body restore its capacity. It's to Some kind of a balance. Uh, balance, exactly. Very interesting. It, it, is, it is not deracination of the antithetical. Uh, in other words, it is not the antibiotic approach. <laughs> it is aseptic <laughs> approach. Right. You can regulate and control uh, for, for example, in Sushruta, there is this mention of the conduct of the shalya, the operation, uh-huh. uh, under aseptic conditions. You can use smoke and various perfumes and all kinds of things which would make bacteria inactive. Right. Under such aseptic condition, the operation would be done and the patient would be allowed to uh, rest underneath the tree. The operation might have taken place <laughs> underneath the tree, the operation theatre and the patient would uh, rest there under aseptic conditions when the body in in modern science you know body is back to its capacity then the patient is allowed to go out in the the in the major field of the bacterial That's know, so interesting thing. That's, That's so interesting. Uh, that is there.
0: What do you think of that, Swati? You know, the antibiotic <laughs> approach, because clearly there is some kind of resistance as an evolutionary response Actually, to that, isn't it?
1: Yeah, you know, um, maybe I'll get to that second. But I was very—I mean, I was also very, um, very happy to hear this interesting phrase about tolerating the the intolerable. Yeah. And again, I can give you a, a extremely molecular example of that from <laughs> you know from malaria, because um, so in Africa where malaria has been, you know sort of existing for for millions of years with humans. Mm-hmm. and this is a textbook example, but it's very connected to what you just said. So Africans um, have actually developed disorders like sickle cell disease and other you know diseases which we consider to be diseases, which are you know which would sort of lower their ability to to function normally, but they are still alive and and kicking. And those kind of um, disorders of their blood give them a huge advantage for being able to, tolerate this malaria parasite. So the malaria parasites ability to infect their blood goes down, which means that they are not as so, Swati, susceptible to malaria.
0: Of, this would be a case of sickle cell anemia as a response or as a as resistance. A, as, against. A,
1: as a response to this pathogen, which is something which That's is they are being exposed to all the time. So that you know so, what they have done is that their body has actually tolerated <laughs> <laughs> They have been able to, you know, to sort of handle this, this you know, pathogen by making changes in their own body, actually. So, I thought that was very that's remarkable. Amazing. That's that sentence which you said. Um, about antibiotics, you know, I think um, I should probably not start on that. <laughs> <because laughs> i probably not finish. But, um, so, antibiotics, I mean, clearly, they're just, you know, they're a way of of going after, of trying to, to kill something which... You know, is obviously causing us uh, disease. Um, again, when I when I think about you know this sort of um, coexistence or this you know the ability of two organisms to to be together, uh-huh. I give you the example of the you know of the of the human um, host changing in response to malaria. Right. So when we talk about antibiotics. Um, even the pathogens are changing in response to antibiotics. Right. Right. So again, it's both sides of this of the game are, are there. There's definitely an arms race going on, and so even today, when we talk about antibiotics, um, the the natural response of the pathogen is to is to become drug resistant. Right. So that again is a is a, a you know survival strategy on the side of the pathogen. So in one sense, it becomes a constant fight to the finish. You know, every time we change, they also change with the next round of things that we throw at them. So I, I guess we we sort of reached the point where we're talking about all the arms races and and all <laughs> of the negative stuff, which you know perhaps that's not always that's not always the route to go down when we have this discussion, even though but it is one. Local,
0: how do you think of this notion of conflict? Um, it's Do you think, do you see conflict as a common thread? Competition as a common thread? Uh, conflict is on Maybe only... Maybe not in a very co- conscious way. Yeah. Oh.
5: Con- conflict is only a consequence. Right. When um, there is plenty of resources, for example, the question of conflict doesn't arise. Well, it has but, to do with whether there's huh. scarcity or abundance y- of yes. resources. And in, in the case of human beings, now when there is scarcity of resources in certain contexts, uh-huh. there will be... Uh, certain groups enhancing their techno-economic capacity to appropriate the resources as efficiently as possible as fast as possible. This uh, sets in a point of competition. Uh And uh, always you have an ensemble of uneven development Uh as regards human groups. There are uneven in terms of their techno, uh, techno-economic capacities. Uh-huh. Their technology is of a, a particular level, their economy is of another level, and uh, with the given techno-economic capacity, each group can compete for grabbing as much resources as possible. But uh, sometimes there is same technology available, but the, the level of access Would be different. For example, iron technology may be available to all the groups, but one community may be using iron technology for making arrowheads. Right. Whereas another group will be using iron for plowshare. Right. So their capacity to uh, amass resources for subsistence would be very high. Investing. And then uh, mm. gradually, you find these unevenly evolved societies entering into a relationship of uh, a structuring, which is inevitably structuring of the the dominance. Uh-huh. There, Correct. There is the, domin- the most dominant on the top, and they decide what should be done and so on. And, and then the whole uh, process would involve incorporation of the weakest for uh, uh, all kinds of menial jobs, hard uh, hard jobs <laughs> and so on. And this is what we call really the relationship of exploitation. And uh, automatically there is some kind of a hierarchical structuring where um, a given division of labor is there. And in the process you find the autonomy of one particular group, um, which had its pristine existence completely facing out and so called ensemble of unevenly evolved uh, uh, human groups would witness a, a process of annihilation of the autonomy of various groups and autonomy will exist only with the dominant others will become incorporated subordinated subjected sometimes even destroyed that is the the process uh, which you find in the uh, in the scene in the scene of the coexistence of human societies, and so in, uh, in in the process, of course, historically speaking, you would see uh, at at one level, um, human societies maintaining a kind of symbiotic relationship with non-human beings and um, right. both flora fauna, right, and among human beings. A relationship of reciprocity, a relationship of redistribution, a relationship of mutuality, a relationship of cooperation among the uneven. All (laughs) all, all sides. That's very interesting. Yes. All all these would be realized through various cultural strategies and uh, social processes uh, manifesting in the form of institutions, one institution or the other. Uh, On the whole there would be certain passions and values emitted uh, from various activities but these would be modulated and controlled by the dominant and they would constitute culture as their main ideology of legitimacy and justification.
0: And what do you mean when you say culture? Culture is only the
5: uh, net output of a given pattern of material process of appropriation and social process of distribution. Mm. Mm. Uh, So Mm. you have at the first level the material process of appropriation of nature, technology and the technological material culture. And at the level of the social appropriation, you have the whole gamut of social practices, institutions, relations and so on. Now they would constitute... The, the general ethics, the values, passions, and so on, and they constitute the ideology part of culture again. So culture is uh, a, a complex um, mix-up of all kinds of material and uh, ideological practices.
0: So interesting. Professor Ganeshaya, what is your take on it? I mean, are there because we've had some very interesting concepts here of, of exploitative relationship, a dominant relationship, emergence of culture potentially. Are there instances of culture in the in the plant and animal world if for a second we don't think of human yes, beings? Yes, there are. Which, yes,
3: there are in animals at least. And uh-huh. uh, parallels of it also seen in the plants. But uh-huh. uh, I would like to now start off with one point that Gurukul Please. started off. Please. That is about when would coexistence are cooperation or negative interactions start among uh, the individuals are in the community uh-huh. his uh, take was that when the resources are limited right you will have these expressions the
0: primary condition of scarcity unfortunately
3: obvious. that is always the fact in the biological system for the reason that even if resources are abundant the organisms are so fecund are so prodigal in reproduction they always overproduce than what is available. And inevitably, competition will now. So abundance ensue. is always temporary. Uh, always temporary. It's very And organisms would automatically overtake the abundance. And they make sure that abundance <laughs> becomes limited. And so, conflicts or the competition would now ensure. <laughs> when competition exists, I mean, competition begins more severely, uh-huh. there are two ways. I compete myself as an individual, or I now join hands with uh, Swati. I have to beat out, let us say, Gurukul. <laughs> so that is the cooperation. Right. I mean, that's what I was trying to now say that deep inside this cooperation or coexistence, there is that element of selfishness or economical gain or selfish gain, whatever it is. Now, coming to the culture, yes, culture is seen in animals also. Uh-huh. It is been established uh, at least in the primates to a greater extent. But the question of uh, demonstrating how far it exists in animals is also a question of how do we define that culture? And is culture a survival strategy? Yes, as a culture as a survival stand, yes, it does exist. Uh-huh. There are a number of examples where animals have shown the culture of cooperating for the existence for the survival of their own group. Right for one group. But there are some cultural elements that perhaps may not have any survival advantage. Uh-huh. They may not exist in the animals. Right. So, if you are now discriminating the humans and animals, perhaps the only difference that might uh, one can see is that all those which are consequence of human conscious thought which are delinked from the survival will not perhaps be seen in the animals. Right. Whereas all those cultural thoughts or cultural elements which are associated with survival can be always now expected to be seen in the animals and, and plants also, but let me now uh, go one step ahead and give some terminologies you know, in our in our uh, human uh, anthropogenic terminologies.
4: Uh-huh.
3: Take for instance uh, the concept of sibling rivalry. Yeah. Sibling rivalry is one where two individuals which are actually brothers start fighting with each other. Very about sisters a while ago. Yes. We we don't expect actually them to fight together. Right. But again, I'll come back. They fight together only when the resources are limited.
0: Right.
3: Because each of them are selected to be very selfish. Right. Because they are selfish, they don't care for what the other's interest is and so they enter into severe competition and the sibling rivalry arises there. Now, what is more interesting is, that people have shown that because of the sibling rivalry, there are conflicts between the parents and the offsprings also. (laughs) Because as a selfish parent, the parent's interest is, evolutionarily again I'm talking, parent's interest is to see that her types increase or her genes will now increase or multiply and she can do so only through the offsprings. Right. But among the offsprings, if there is conflict, some of them would die and only some would survive. That means the mother is now not gaining by the sibling rivalry. Sibs compete among themselves because each one of them among them want to survive. But mother would not want them to know fight. Correct. And that is why a mother would always like to feed all the kids together. But. Kids won't agree with the mother's interest. <laughs> they care, it, it, you know, we don't care for my mother's uh, fitness, mother's success. I would because like to. Because now they're thinking of their progeny. Their progeny, exactly, <laughs> their progeny. And so there is a conflict between the parents and the offspring over this interest, over the interest of mother wanting to have more offspring, but offspring wanting to be the lone survivors. Now let me. Inclusive fitness. Let me now give you one drastic example in plants. Uh-huh. In some of the fruits like for instance orange that we eat, we now find very few seeds and all other seeds are small aborted you would see that you know, when you eat your fruit or the single piece of the orange uh-huh. there will be one seed and rest will be aborted that is purely because rest are aborted as in they are not very well small, formed well, well small. formed yes sure, that is purely sure. because of sibling rivalry well, one among true. the <laughs> dominant seed one among the dominant seed the dominance that uh, gurukul was talking about dominant seed would now kill the other seeds to be the lone survivor so that it now gains more resources but the mother has produced all the seeds because our interest is to produce all of them as her offsprings. Right. And and in fact, so much so that you see that in orange there are different peels. The reason is, mother has now divided the fruit into peels so that the competition is restricted to only those peels. So that at <laughs> least she gets at least one seed from each of these peel. So in that sense, dominance if you want to now call that culture, bad culture of fighting, if you want to call that, you know, the bad culture of conflict, is seen even in plants also.
0: And you know, since we are on the topic, maybe it's a small digression, but why is it that some fruits have more seeds and some some have fewer?
3: In terms of, let us say, if I now take watermelon and uh, uh, the orange, if you want to take. Well, this is related to the kind of pollination mechanism they adapt. Yeah the plants that adapt an insect pollination mechanism will have the following opportunity. An insect carries abundant number of pollen grains if and when it visits the flower. Correct. So, so many seeds can be formed. If it visits, so many seeds can be formed. If it doesn't visit, no seeds can be formed. Right. So under those situations, plants become an opportunist. Let me produce so many ovules so that if by chance I get the insect, all of them get developed into seeds. Right. It's a
4: probability Whereas, game.
3: Yes. Whereas in, in few plants, you get only one or two seeds because there, generally, pollination is wind, dis- wind pollinated. Right. In wind, the pollen grains disperse amorphously, randomly. So the probability of deposition of the pollen grains is just one or two and then they can only have one or two seeds. That is a difference. Argument altogether, but when in a particular fruit, when there are too many seeds, inevitably they compete to ensure that they beat out as many offsprings as possible and become the lone survivors or few survivors. (laughs) To that extent, even in plants, there is cruelty of killing. There is cruelty of you know bleeding. You know this is very in the same plant. In plants, I told you, this orange is in fact this cruelty of killing only that actually leads to the formation of single seed. (laughs) Uh, Parallel to that exists for instance in birds. There are birds called raptors, Uh which you know, form their nest in the cliffs of, uh, you know, in the hanging cliffs. Right. Now, mother lays two or three eggs Uh and all of them hatch at a difference of one or two days. Uh The dominant among them, which hatches first, Uh grows little faster and ensures that when the mother has gone out to fetch the food, it elbows out the other remaining the younger ones to push them out of the nest and to become the lone survivors. <laughs> and if that doesn't fall, they peak them, them to death and bleed them to death as a matter of fact. This is talk. a one or two-day old. One or two-day old. They wouldn't even have the consciousness. They're instinctively, they are driven to now make sure that they're. I mean, ONC doesn't have consciousness. Of course. It is evolutionarily selected to ensure <laughs> that the chemical is produced otherwise another seed that doesn't produce the chemical would not survive as good as this seed that produces the chemical and kills the seeds so in that sense though you know in uh, that fruit of orange we see several piles coexisting we see several seeds coexisting but that coexistence that we see is a consequence of severe competition that has existed and mother's strategy of separating that competition into different peels so in Coexistence has the space of competition. It's
0: a very strategic area. <laughs> yeah.
3: Oh, across organisms, from uh, microorganisms to the uh, higher mammals. Let me also know out here another thing. Uh-huh. Despite the fact that one would see always selfishness in coexistence, coexistence or cooperation seem to be the driving engine of the entire evolution of diversity on this planet. In fact, uh, Swati would perhaps add more to this. Every plant cell has two separate organs. One is what is called as the chloroplast, which actually traps the energy from the sun and provides the energy to the plant cell. And other is called mitochondria, which utilizes this energy and uh, you know, makes the cell right. active. Right. So, these two are shown to be actually different organisms that have entered into this cell millions and millions of years ago. So on one hand so They have just
0: become a part of the eukaryotic cells. They have cells become part the of way.
3: they have become part of. They are now coexisting today in that particular cell. Wow. One is now synthesizing energy and other is spending the energy no one very is interesting. yes one is trapping solar energy and other is providing energy to the entire cell and this is cooperation but inside this cooperation we should not forget that chloroplast is now trying to survive on its own and hence it is helping the mitochondria to spend energy and mitochondria is selfish on its own it is now depending on the chloroplast to get the energy right. so there is again selfishness between within this cooperation or so this, if this chloroplast had not entered into cells, the entire plant kingdom would not have evolved. If the entire plant kingdom would not have evolved, there would not have been so many animals that depend on, like insects, on these plants. And this world wouldn't have been so rich with these diverse organisms. So in that sense, cooperation, or if I have to now expand the term of cooperation to coexistence, right. is perhaps the driving engine of the entire living world on the planet
0: and know, on an evolutionary arc uh, professor Ganeshaya, the plants have come before animals is that settled and i know uh, there are different kinds of plants and different kinds of that animals. is
3: difficult to say because that is difficult to say because at, at some time when the green alga like organisms came uh-huh. evolution became more paced i mean the speed of evolution increased
4: right, right we do
3: not know what came first because in the early formation of the organism What we can call an organism, which is a self reproducing unit, there is nothing like plant or animal. It was just a conglomeration of few chemical reactions that try to now self reproduce on their own, utilizing the energy available in the surroundings. It's Mm. only later that, you know, green alga and others can. I'm sure Swati would now perhaps add more to that. Um, Well, I
1: could. Um, So, uh, again, so I think, you know, so the you're right. And actually, I think it's also linked to the fact that once we had, um, you know, photosynthesis, then we even had oxygen. Yes. So the oxygen levels then shot up.
3: Which helped the animals. Which then
1: helped the animals. So again, you know, it's all a big network. So very know, clearly,
3: big... evolution of that mutualistic association between the chloroplast like green alga and mitochondria like bacteria that were entrapped into the eukaryotic cell was the basis of this whole diversity that we see, the whole so-called coexistence that we are now talking about today—that's today. very
0: interesting. And Swati, maybe we change tracks a little bit and talk about this concept of species barrier. And you know, you, for a while you spoke about, for example, Ebola virus, for example, it, it 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 it's not supposed to be in human beings. And uh, how does it happen again? Is it an evolutionary accident and the virus crossing over from one species to another?
1: Sure. So um, I can I'll you know start off with that, but. Please do remind me to get back to this culture thing because Why I had. Why do start a, with that? Okay, I'll start with the culture thing. <laughs> so actually, when you were talking about culture, you know, it. I, I was thinking it's not exactly the same, obviously, but I was thinking about you know parasites. So for me, when you were talking about culture, you were talking about you know ethics and there are certain sort of you know uh, rules and people sort of fi- fix some some way of you know behaving together. Uh-huh. So it sort of struck me that um, there are many examples of parasites which actually alter the behavior of their hosts. Oh,
3: to help themselves. To help
1: themselves. <laughs> <laughs> and so um, this is quite remarkable because this is you know tiny organism sitting in your body and it's actually making you behave in a very very different way. So I'll it's give you behavioral one of the behavioral changes. So I'll give you one of the classic examples which has been studied, which is of Toxoplasma gondii, uh-huh. which is a parasite which um, for people who are not Im- immunocompromised, it doesn't do much. It's in your body and it'll probably exit um, at some point. But for immunocompromised people, it can actually stay in your body longer and okay. it also makes its way to the brain. Uh-huh. But this is, again, a, a very human-centric um, you know, way of looking at Toxoplasma. If you look at the, at the Toxoplasma life cycle, uh-huh. the Toxoplasma's um, primary host, the definitive host, where it can carry out a sexual life cycle. Uh so these parasites they want to carry out sexual life cycles because they can undergo recombination of their genetic material and so you get more um you know variability which gives you a better you know survival
0: survival probability and everything so it
1: would be very good for this parasite to land up in the cat because the cat is that is the definitive host and in that animal it will be able to carry out its sexual life cycle Uh however the parasite because it is released from the cat through the fecal root, it actually enters all different kinds of mammals. Right. And some of the mammals that it can enter are rodents. Oh. So rodents, like humans, are a bit of a dead end for this parasite. It can multiply, but it cannot carry out the sexual life.
0: But cycle. what's the natural host for the Toxoplasma? Is it humans? So,
1: no, no. So, um, so the definitive host is cats. Okay. And then the other host could be any other mammal.
0: Right, right.
1: So this parasite is trying to get back into the cat
0: (laughs) from the rodent into the cat it
1: needs to get back into the cat because it would like to carry out its sexual finally there's some
0: logic to Tom and Jerry so
1: so it actually because one of the places where it can also reside in the in the you know in the in the non-definitive host is the brain right and so there are very nice studies showing that mice that are infected with toxoplasma parasites Uh if you um, expose them to cat odour Uh A mouse that's not infected would run away from that odor. It would show an aversion response.
0: Which is natural. Which
1: is natural. But Toxoplasma infected parasites actually move towards cat odor. So this is, so a, this is a, a, a relationship which has <laughs> even altered the change. behavior of, of one of the, you know, so this is, this is, That's now. Amazing. and behavior, you know, when we think of behavior, I'm sure we think of sociological aspects. This is poetry, aspects isn't it?
3: There is a similar example of a, of a virus uh-huh. uh, on a caterpillar that infects maize. This caterpillar eats the maize leaves. Okay. But there is a virus that actually infects this uh, caterpillar. Okay. Now this virus modifies the behaviour of this caterpillar in such a way that caterpillar goes to the top of the maize plant and exposes itself so that the bird comes and picks it. And in turn it goes and now spreads the virus to others. <laughs>
5: <laughs> One interesting thing to be noted here is, I am mean, trying to draw a contrast between the uh, non-human and the
0: human. Sure: Now,
5: the general thing is survival threat, and then uh, there are series of responses to uh, uh, the survival threat, and then various cultural uh, strategies evolved in the animal world uh-huh. and, and then the human world. But in the human world, one difference is that uh, it goes beyond the naturally given communitarian strategy. Community is the strategy uh, evolved uh, uniformly in the general, what you call the community eco setting. Right. Uh, community can be seen as the best uh, survival strategy, uh, which you find uh, mo- most of the uh, living beings. Follow. Most species and have that yeah, behaviour. You asked this question Correct. to begin with. Why certain Why species do some species live in, yeah. in groups? And groups. Uh, so community you can see from the micro uh, organisms to the macro. But one difference is that conscious involvement in communitarian existing is uh-huh. available only in uh, uh, high order hominums. higher primates. And, yeah. short. And, mm. and from community onwards there is a, a, a big ladder which Homo sapiens sapiens was able to negotiate. Uh-huh. It's not just lost in community. No. It it is thinking um, about even a world level organization, uh-huh. a global level organization. You don't have that kind of institutionalization in the case of a, a, any other living beings. And then, you now with the result when we think in terms of the relationships amongst various other living organisms, uh, there is a tendency to uh, carry forward all kinds of presumptions notions, ideas and so on of human existence into them. And also there is a lot of misnomer in the language that we use. For example, uh, although it communicates very well, uh, uh, Professor Ganeshaya was talking about selfishness. Selfishness of the seed and so it's, it's uh, an anthropogenic uh, yeah. take. To, to, to mm. Self is absent. You know? Selfishness Selfish. without self. Uh, selfishness <laughs> without a self. You know, it's for communi- it communicates very well, but at the same time, it's a misnomer. Yes. It is not possible. There are various such terms uh, first used by the anthropologists and sociologists, and then um, sometimes in a very indiscreet uh, manner. That's in very interesting. Manner casual manner used by the entomologists and um, you know, various specialists. Now, sometimes they use it in a metaphorical context. Uh, sometimes even they use it in a metanomic context, which is utterly uh, unscientific and has no relevance. For example, now you uh, say cune b". The moment you identify female bee as cune, it's a metanomic sense. <laughs> <laughs> a you, uh, you expect the all kinds of ideas, institutions, practices, all sorts of regulations and so on in, in, in the same setting. Uh, and, and then it becomes the responsibility of the entomologist to see, okay, X means this, Y means this and the whole… Uh, this is
0: beautiful, Prasad uh, <laughs> what, Gurukul. What word do you use for selfishness? It into, for for someone dealing at the microbiological level
5: I, you know when uh, a seed is uh, destroying other seeds now to communicate that you have to uh, uh, bring in an, an anthropocentric context sure because we admit that selfishness is part of human <laughs> behavior uh, with the result to be we, uh, we some uh, you know in an in an inadvertent way uh, identify a a seed as an individual. An individual with the consciousness and so on. But it is not individuated. It is not individuated and there isn't anything called selfishness there. I think we should...
3: Yeah, I completely agree with Gurukal in the way that one has to be careful about using these terminologies of seed is selfish and all that. Right. But unfortunately, in today's... Dictionary of evolutionary biology. Our lexical is anthropogenic. Selfishness and all that has been digested as terms to now explain the process that is going on. I'm sure Guru also perhaps appreciates that. So these are terms that we are using to explain the process that is going on. And uh, we do not, in that sense, mean that, you know, seed knows that I'm selfish, I want to kill, no.
0: One is not for, ascribing consciousness yes. or agency to
3: that. Exactly, yeah. exactly. For that matter, you know, we do not yet know uh, to what level all our actions are driven by our consciousness and what level our actions are driven by instinctiveness, Instinct. even in humans also. It's all instinctiveness in the seeds, it's all instinctiveness in insects and all those organisms, for that matter, even birds also. That is taken for sure. I completely agree with Gurukal. However, what else do we call it as? That's the point, <laughs> <laughs> and so, so I, I think one so, is
0: nomenclature, the other is understanding. Are we yes, understanding yes, the right thing yes. by using the wrong term? In so, fact, I'm
3: biologists sure. themselves disagree in using the term called "selfish gene." You know, Richard yeah. Dawkins brought right. in this phrase Correct. called "selfish gene" through his book, and uh, it has now become. Sometimes, I mean, I agree with this uh, uh, point that there is a danger because we are also perhaps badly training the readers of this book called Selfish Gene. The Gene knows that I am going to be selfish and Gene knows that I want to multiply. But eventually, I mean, people like Dawkins or evolutionary barrages in general make sure that make this class, that when we explain this, it does not mean that they know about it. And that's how evolution is explained. Among the two seeds that are there in that piece of orange, if one produces a chemical that kills the other sibs, that has a better survival than the other which does not produce a chemical. And so this survives. So we call it selfish. That is the meaning here. However, let us now come back to another component of what Gurukul raised. Does consciousness promote more cooperation among individuals? Uh-huh. There, I would like to put a blame back in sense, blame meaning, a blame back on the human dominance Our human uh, arrogance that we can think and others cannot think.
4: Uh
3: I will tell you what I mean. Now, because we think that we can think better than others, Uh we seem to think that we know that we are cooperating for the good of the society or for the family etc. Deep inside, no society is sacrificing. Deep inside, no community is sacrificing. Uh No uh, system of groups is sacrificing they all appear to be sacrificing ultimately for the selfishness of their own survival. So
0: there's no the there world. is no sacrifice in the Darwinian world? There is no
3: sacrifice in the Darwinian sense. I, I, Let I, me I, give an example for instance. <laughs>
4: <laughs> for instance... I think, it, 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 I think
5: there is one problem here. <laughs> Please. That is you know,
3: uh, the question of altruism.
5: Yes. Now, whether uh, you have uh, a clear kind of conscious, altruistic and, uh, you know, a regardful attitude among n- n- non human you know, uh, unless it is based on survival instinct. No, you, you have um, a kind of altruism which even goes to s- total self negation. That, that is there only among human beings. Let Isn't me. The sac- I, I mean, sacrifice of the de facto. Kind.
0: I mean, it's somewhat linked to the point of supra consciousness in a way that you were mentioning a while ago, wasn't it? Right? Uh, yes, have no, the ability I, of. No, I,
5: I, I differentiate. I do not know whether I'm right, but I have always this feeling that human beings, because of their critical self reflexive faculty, uh-huh. uh, can anticipate many things, can self uh, be self critical, and also uh, is conscious about its consciousness. Right. Whereas, uh, It is a relationship of um, kind of encounter or confrontation uh, between human on the one side and then the non-human on the other. And the non-human world, the biosphere as a whole, minus human beings, if survival instinct is central and if at all there exists consciousness, that consciousness is inscrutably hidden.
0: Uh, Swati, do you think of consciousness at all? And what, from an evolutionary perspective, uh, what is the world likely to be without human beings um, on it? Earth, rather.
1: Okay, so um, as a biologist, I don't think too much about consciousness because I can give you many, many examples of tiny creatures with no brains at all that seem to behave in inscrutably hidden ways, which is very good for their own survival. So Mm -hmm. you know, I can give lots of those examples. Mm But, you know, perhaps sort of going back to this whole idea about, you know, human cooperation or different kinds of levels of cooperation, you asked me the question whether uh, what would happen if there were no humans at all on the planet so Mm -hmm. that one could imagine as a byproduct of not being able to cooperate whatsoever that we somehow are not existent on the planet. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, uh, there's some interesting um, real life scenarios of that. So, for example, in, you know, Chernobyl, where there was a a nuclear disaster so Uh, humans have actually vacated cities in that part of the world and um, wildlife and nature has you know taken over over. and even though there are levels of radioactivity which we would be a bit scared by Mm -hmm. it seems to be from the studies that there is not a huge increase in for example birth defects in you know wolves and wild animals so you know the rest of the the rest of nature has continued to go its own way and um, you that's know, very in our, in our absence completely so
0: that's very interesting why don't you spend the last uh, uh, 10 15 minutes just speculating about what the future is likely to be and what are some interesting tensions and uh, for a second we were talking about the human pathogen yeah. conflict if one may call it that Uh what is likely to happen in the next thousand years, ten thousand years, million years, Swati? You know, so Difficult again, question, but yeah, very hard
1: like? to you know to answer. But again, as a biologist, and I'm sure you know, Pro- Professor Ganeshaya as a evolutionary biologist, will also have his own take on this. But as a as a biologist, I feel, I feel optimistic because I feel that there's always ups and downs.
0: Optimistic on as
1: a human being. As a human being. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as a member of the planet, I, I, because, you know, there are always, there are are groups competing with each other. There are groups trying to survive. Mm -hmm. And um, based on what we have seen over the last million years, Uh this is, I I feel that this is not going to change very much. We will, there there will be ups and downs, but we will, you know, humans and other species on the planet will find ways of um, optimizing their own, you know, uh, sort of survival strategies and... I, I personally don't don't see a, a doomsday kind of scenario. I, I do agree that the arms race between pa- pathogens and humans will continue. And, um, you know, let's let's see how it all works out. I, I feel that evolution is going to balance and we'll all, you know, there will be some sort of stable situation at the end of it.
0: Dr. Gurukal, do you think of evolution in a
1: value-neutral uh, 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 way? What's the future uh, of I'm the human society? That
5: I'm not that optimistic. Because the way I am scaling the techno-economic progress uh-huh. and then the disaster that is, uh, uh, you know, happening. Um, uh, this would uh, uh, give us some idea that the human beings will have to vacate the earth. Stephen Hawking said that a millennium would be the time uh, one can think of for the human beings to get the technology to get themselves. And go and inhabited. colonize other planets or some, other, some, celestial some, some bodies. other planets. And the main reason is that the earth is going to be useless. So type two society. And and no species that. ever made the earth so useless. Human beings destroyed it.
0: This is a verdict. <laughs> <laughs> it's not that way Just it's, uh, it. uh, it's, it's an expression indefinite. of utter
5: disappointment <laughs> <laughs> every time we developed knowledge but the knowledge was not acting as the guiding light for shaping the life of the um, human being the civilization of course sometimes gave us excellent lessons but the future uh, happened to be never planned according to the insights drawn from the lessons as a student of history but, mm-hmm. I, I would say that you know, it it goes with this the statement made long ago by philosopher hegel that uh, one thing that ever learns from history is that nobody ever, ever learns of anything history. from history
2: yes
0: <laughs> uh professor ganesha it looks like you belong in the optimistic camp but what is the what's the bad news from you where
3: I don't have the bad news. In fact, the best news that I got from Uh Gurukul is that consciousness has evolved. Right. And does the consciousness help us in still coexisting with each other? Okay. I would again like to view that consciousness itself is a process of evolution and evolution has never never failed to increase efficiency and, and you know, success. Mm-hmm. Everything that has happened in the evolution is for the good of the species or good of the organisms. Mm-hmm. So, if consciousness has evolved, which is a boon to the uh, human society, I don't like to think it as, you know... A dangerous thing to the society, human society. In fact, because of consciousness is realizing that the world that we are around is being destroyed by ourselves, and this is the first step of learning to correct himself and that is happening. As a matter of fact, we no other organism has been very kind enough to other organisms in conserving the species. Right. We have our national parks, we have conservation sites, we have millions of species of plants, in the form of seeds conserved. So humans are, because of this very consciousness that we think is bad, is actually using it for the positive side. Let us not forget, if you look at the human existence on this earth, Uh historically, there have been situations where man has faced this kind of situa- this kind of you know condition of you know desperation, dis- uh, desperateness. Yes. Yes. From the nomadic phase, you know, he reached a plateau because there were no more resources. Right. And then he discovered agriculture, mm-hmm. settled agriculture, mm-hmm. and again human population spurged. Mm-hmm. and again there was a plateau because settled agriculture also could only produce so much right. and then the industrialization came about, again human, human population took another surge mm-hmm. and we are reaching a stage where as Guru Kul rightly told, we have destroyed our environment, our resources are getting spoiled, so we might again reach a plateau. But we realize that we are destroying it. So, pardon we me?
0: We realize that we're we it, are destroying it. We have realized and itself. that is the
3: first lesson and we are very good at learning the lessons, though uh-huh. history many have taught the lesson, consciousness and education has taught us the lessons and we, as the most intelligent beings on the earth would not only conserve ourselves, would conserve the entire world and that is what all the policies today are being now developed, whether it is IPC policy
1: yeah. or
3: the conservation strategies or our you know ozone you know, uh, yeah. uh, protection. I
1: would, I would add the, the survival instinct also survival to that instinct, list of yes. the consciousness In fact, the, the consciousness
3: I mean. perhaps has evolved to now help us in surviving. Mm-hmm. And to that extent, I am optimistic in thinking that we not only live on this earth, and even if we leave and go out, we will still be living on the earth and also elsewhere. That is the way I look at it.
0: That's interesting. and do you do you think of uh, is the survival instinct of human beings in any way more acute or more capable than the other
3: species? It's a matter of subjectiveness. Sure. For instance, there was a time where dinosaurs ruled the earth as humans are ruling today. Right. If someone had observed the history of earth at that time, people would have thought that no other organism perhaps would overtake the earth the way dinosaurs had overtaken. That's And right. dinosaurs disappeared. That's I only right. hope you don't disappear. <laughs> but, you know, dinosaurs did not disappear because of their own bad deeds it is said that you know some meteorite came and hit the earth and so things happened differently and dinosaurs disappeared unless such disaster happens to human beings human beings on their own may not destroy the ecosystem of the earth to the extent so that so the
0: probability of self destruction is very very, very low. less so very it's less likely to be open to accidents yes. in some and way and so
3: we continue and we may exist and we may coexist with the entire living world on this earth
0: swati so, what's happening in the microbial world and what's the future there it, i mean clearly it's 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 somewhat arrogant to even try and visualize a future
1: the microbial world will continue to <laughs> divide and uh, populate and the number of species of microbes on the planet is not even countable i mean we haven't even discovered millions of microbial species but is that increasing oh uh, i think you know again when we talk about destruction of habitat obviously certain pockets there will be you know a decrease mm-hmm. but the you know again microbes are remarkably hardy they can tolerate a lot of things and they will i think you know so i think you know again you have the two optimistic biologists so that is continuing you know that i i would continue to say that you know and again all the you know the pathogens trying to um, you know get a, a grip on the host hosts fighting back all part of natural um, you know the no, the sort of long term evolutionary strategies of it will it will continue they are they
0: are all and is there continue. symbiosis at work as well at the microbial level or it's, uh,
1: it's oh absolutely so there's so many examples of that right mm-hmm. so even i mean again classic example is our own body where we have billions of bacteria in our gut and they help us to digest our food and our body gives them a nice little niche to to be protected from and no that's thing.
0: the source of our gut instinct at some level. <laughs> <laughs>
1: that's true. So lots of examples of uh, you know, nature and various organisms cooperating with each other. So,
0: are there, are there other ways and formats? Are there other modes of coexistence, uh, Professor Ganesha? Yeah, we have spoken about parasitism. We have spoken about symbiosis, which is kind of interesting, a predator-prey relationship. Well, the space. Are there other things that you see in nature which are uh, p- possible
3: clues? Well, there are, you know, if you we look at this space let us say, space between two dimensions of partner A and partner B, or mm-hmm. species B a and, a and species B, mm-hmm. the whole space is filled with these interactions of mutualism, antagonism, competition, you know, commensalism. They're only our terms. Right. It's a continuous space continuous space of every organism trying to live on its own. Right. Sometimes they adapt this uh, visibly cooperative strategy, which actually is not cooperation. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they adapt over-exploitative strategy of antagonism. Sometimes mm-hmm. you know it appears one organism is neutral and other is now trying to exploit it, as in commensalism. Mm-hmm. Sometimes both of them will be competing for their survival. So the entire space is full of these interactions, which are only our classifications. But that space itself is continuum. In a Darwinian uh, you know uh, the context. So that world of Darwin's space is always filled with selfish attitude to survive, because of which the world has evolved, because of which life has evolved, and so that space should continue to be selfish for the entire organisms and life life to be surviving. It will continue also. That's my way of looking at it. We will not. Also, Gurukul, what will it take for you to turn optimistic?
5: No, certainly. know I know the uh, the danger. And therefore, I am an activist and I am actively involved in conservation and uh, afforestation, whatever. Mm. But I am, as a student of social science, aware of the problem that, you know, unlike other species, human beings destroy uh, various species. Human beings, uh, as a... Uh, 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 as a process just opposite to nature. In nature also destruction is taking place. But as as opposed to natural process, there is a socio-economic process which involves incorporation, subordination, subjection and destruction of various other species. Human beings make a selection which species is useful and so on. All this because of the uh, anthropocentric uh, uh, kind of arrogant attitude that you know uh, uh, is different from any other dominance which existed in the in the past uh, as um, uh, professor agneshia pointed out there was certainly dominance by the dinosaurs but that was not knowledgeable dominance mm-hmm. it was not knowledgeable domination of the biosphere now human beings with anthropocentrism on the other side, and also a minority, certainly with the biospheric empathy and so on. But always there is a knowledgeable governance, knowledgeable control, which is destructive, which is not giving me optimism, or which is giving me more pessimism than optimism. Mm-hmm. Now, in this techno-capitalist world, now the disaster on one side, the 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 greedy nature of human beings there. Uh, In spite of great people like Gandhiji talking about, you know, everything exists in nature to satisfy needs of human beings, but there isn't much to satisfy the greed of the human beings. Now, the the competition between uh, greed and and then the... But are we that
0: important from the
5: standpoint of earth? uh, It's important in the sense, although we have this optimism based on technology and science, that... Whatever is the need, the need is going to be satisfied. But it is again known through science that to satisfy all such needs, resources do not exist on earth. That has to be taken
3: care of. I would like to add here that Gandhi's statement that we frequently quote is a landmark evidence to show that we realize the mistakes we are doing. Right. Right. He made a statement. Why? Because we have realised and we are quoting frequently because we are now trying to learn from that. And so we are now trying to take measures to now correct the mistake that we are doing. So in that sense, the evidences that we quote to say that we actually are destroying are actually coming from the conscious expression of our realization of what we are doing, which per se is actually driving us to save our. That's
0: beautiful. You know, so yeah. I think the good news that we that Prof. Gurukul realizes that he's pessimistic. <laughs> <laughs>
3: but you know I, I
5: mean, that statement made now we have already crossed the seven decades. <laughs> No, what? <laughs> what is the change that we are seeing in this it's in the not country long of enough, social yeah. changes social changes yeah, occur very so, so, slowly social changes, and social evolution uh, is much slower no, uh, it, yeah. if we had drawn the insight definitely we should not have fallen prey to techno
0: capitalism
5: of this order
0: terrific. terrific i think that's a great note to end us on maybe we reconvene a million years later and see where you reached thank you so much it's great to have all of you and we look forward to having you soon again take care thank you Thanks. thank you